Thank you, Robin. Well, as we begin, I want to give you uh, three kind of little snapshots of worship. When Abraham, when it was time for his son Isaac to be married, he called, Abraham called his servant to himself. And he said, I want you to go. And I want you to go back to my people. I don't want you to find a wife for my, my son here in where we're living, but I want you to go back. And so the, the servant vowed and he said, I will do everything you're, you're commissioning me to do and I will not return unless I have a wife from among your people. And so with 10 camels, clothing and gifts in tow, he came near to the destination that, that um, Abraham had sent him to. And he prayed a prayer to God and he prayed a very specific prayer asking that God would answer this prayer. And he when God responded exactly as he requested, the servant responded with worship. And we see this in Genesis 24, 26 to 27. He said, and the, and the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. That's one snapshot of worship, an answered prayer. The second snapshot of worship is from a guy that we're a little bit familiar with. It's a man named Job. As you may remember, Job was a very wealthy man. He had lots of kids. He had lots of livestock. He was just very, very well-to-do, and he was devout. And yet in, in a, a series of tragic events, he lost all of his children, he lost most of his wealth, and he lost his health in a very short period of time. And the book of Job says that in response, he worshiped God. Job 120, then, he, then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. The third snapshot I want to give you is from the New Testament. And, and in this, we have the wise men. Just after, you know, we, we would have celebrated this earlier this month, the, the epiphany, but the coming of the wise men, they saw a star in the east and they began to journey to follow what that star represented. And they came to Bethlehem, really, they came to Jerusalem and inquired of the king, and they found in Scripture that it said, in Bethlehem. So they went to Bethlehem and found Mary, Joseph, and this child. And Matthew 2.11 says, and going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Worship is one of those things that we think we know what it is. We tend to put it into a certain box and assume that worship equals music. We'll have a time of worship and then the pastor will get up and drone on for a time. They'll be singing, there'll be the worship and then the reading of the word or the speaking of the word. But in many ways, worship is a response to God for who he is, for what he has done, for how he works in the world. Richard Foster defines worship as our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. 
Donald Whitney similarly defines worship as focusing on and responding to God. If we were to do a word study in Hebrew and Greek, we would find that in Hebrew, there are about 11 different words that all get translated into worship of some sort in the, in the Old Testament. They have a whole wide range of meanings. If we were to do a, a study in Greek, we'd find 13 different words. And the most prominent words in both Greek and Hebrew refer to that idea, that concept of bowing down in worship. Others refer to giving homage or respect. Some refer specifically to the worship of false idols or to the direction of a worshiper. A worshiper is bowing toward someplace. In other words, worship is somewhat complex. And even as we can see in the example from Job's life, worshiping God can come in the lowest points of life. I don't think Job tore his clothes, shaved his head, and pulled out a guitar and sang a song. I don't think he had a little lyre going. His worship was not a worship like we, would, like we just did here. I'm not sure that he sang anything, but simply cried out in worship of God. And so, as you know, we're going through this series in, in looking at spiritual disciplines, being having a disciplined delight in the Trinity. And we come to this next discipline, and that is the discipline of worship, the idea of us responding to God. And so we're going to try to capture, and we're not, we're not going to do it justice, but we're going to try to capture the complexities of worship with that word respond in, in, an, uh, in, an, in an acrostic. And these are not necessarily in any theological or exegetical order, but hopefully it's a way for us to see that worship is far more than singing. Worship is far more than just what we do here when we gather. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open them to Psalm 95. This is not the passage that Robin read. If, so one of the things that we're doing in, for, for the next few weeks in, in our normal Bible reading is, is walking through Psalm 119. We're not going to get all the way through it, but I, I wanted us to read that because in Psalm 119, we get a chance to hear the psalmist delight in the laws and the precepts and the word of God. But here in Psalm 95, we get this glorious call to worship. We get this invitation to enter in to worship of God. And one of the first things that we can see and likely the first reasons that we have to respond to God is out of reverence, out of reverence for who he is. In fact, the first seven verses of Psalm 95 reflect on this. And as we, as we read through this, notice how the psalmist calls us to do certain things. He said, let us do this. And then gives us reasons for these reverent actions with the word for. Essentially, he says, let us come and do this for God is this. So let's look at Psalm 95, verses 1 to 7 together. It says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, 
Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You see, when we respond to God's character and, and, and his actions with reverence, we recognize and delight in so many things. And even, through, even um, thinking through some of the things that the psalmist notes here, for instance, first of all, he calls God Yahweh. He uses the, if you notice in your Bible, it probably has capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. And that is the English rendition of the Hebrew name Yahweh, God's covenant name that he used with his people. He is Yahweh. He is our God. But secondly, we can see that he is the foundation or the security of our salvation. As the Israelites would look at this, most likely they were looking back. They were singing in worship and reflecting on all that God did in the Exodus when he brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And so he would re they would rejoice over God's faithfulness then. But I think in our lives too, when we consider the plight in which we find ourselves stuck in sin. Jesus Christ is our means of salvation. He is our ransom and redemption. He has freed us from the bondage of our salvation. He is the rock of our salvation. Next, Yahweh is a great God. There are, there's no other God like him. Sure, there are, are deities that other people worship, but as people who believe in one true God, we would say that those deities are just false. They're made up. They're nothing. And yet, so many other people think that they want to worship these other deities, and God is incomparable to them. He is the king over all. He rules and reigns. All that exists is under his sovereign control. He is next the creator and sustainer. He caused all things to exist and sustains them. He is our God. He is our shepherd. He is our maker. Not only did he create us, but he made us as a people unto himself. He made the people of Israel. He was the one who caused them to be his people. And now through Jesus Christ, we get to be made into his people. So when we worship, whether here in corporate worship or with our families or in our own quiet times, even in times of crisis, we get to respond with reverence recognizing that nothing that happens, even the challenges that we face, nothing is happening outside of God's notice. Nothing happens without his permission. But I think in addition to responding with reverence in worship, we respond to God with embrace. We respond to God with embrace. And I think that in doing this, we are embracing him for who he is and, his, and for his role in our lives and in our world Look at verse seven. It says, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. He is not just God. He is not just a God. He is our God. We get to embrace his intimate identification with us. He chooses to put his name with us through Jesus Christ. But also, we get to have our identification in him. We get to embrace that. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And I found it interesting. Do you notice that it almost seems like the, the psalmist is mixing metaphors there? It seems like it should be the sheep of his pasture, the people of his hand. 
But instead he says, no, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And as people of his pasture, we get to live and move under his watchful eye, under his protective care. We can rest assured, confident, at peace in his protection. But as the sheep of his hand, we are led by him, we are cared for by him, we are protected, we are corrected, we are nurtured by him. Oh, come, let us worship the Lord. So we get to respond with reverence, we get to respond with embrace. Thirdly, we get to respond as we often do with singing. The psalmist writes, come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. You know, music has an amazing way of engaging our minds in in ways that mere words can't. I I don't listen to a lot of music during the week. I I listen to a lot of talking heads and talking podcasts, and I read a lot of things. but, But it almost seems like without fail, there is always a song going through my head. While I'm studying, while I'm reading, it used to drive Danielle crazy when we were in college, and someone would say something, and I would all of a sudden start singing a song that had that word in it. But all through this week, I've been singing, and there's a a song that has been going through my brain that we sang last week, that song, Overwhelmed. I see the works of your hand, galaxies spin in a heavenly dance, oh God. All that you are is so overwhelming. I hear the sound of your voice all at once. It's a gentle and thundering noise. Oh God, all that you are is so overwhelming. I delight myself in you, captivated by your beauty. I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed by you. I would hear those words and every now and then when no one was around, I would sing out a bit in the halls. But there are also times when songs help us to remember something that's tricky. For example, the children right now in Kids Connection are learning about the 10 Commandments and one of the things that they're doing in addition to different projects and different activities and reading scripture and trying to memorize it, is they're learning a song called The Perfect Ten. And it's this really fun way of helping them remember this is the order of the perfect ten, the Ten Commandments that God gave them. And I'm looking forward to a day when the kids will be ready to sing that in here with us. We'll be able to teach that to us. But as we come before the Lord in song, lyrics remind our brains about the greatness and the goodness of God and his mysterious work in our lives. In fact, just think through some of the songs that we've already sung this morning. For instance, that first song, uh, Praise the Lord, To God Be the Glory. This is a, a new rendition of an old hymn that lifts our hearts and minds to exalt in God, the great God above all gods. Or that song, Happy in Jesus, reminds us of the benefits of delighting in him, that joy of leaving from temptation, being drawn into him, that confidence that we have in being with him for eternity. Or what the Lord has done in me helps us to recount some of what God has done, especially through Jesus Christ. Or behold our God. Pulling together the gospels with Job and Psalms, helping us to see that God is unlike anything else Who can compare to him? Who can give him counsel? Who can instruct him? He alone is God, and we get to worship him. And after we're done, we're going to conclude with that simple 
chorus, here I am to worship. A personal response to bow in humility before God. May these and other songs worm their way through our minds. May his praises fill our lungs and may our voices sing out in loud songs of praise. Even in songs of lament and confession and humility before him as we respond to who he is. So in responding to God, we can, it'll involve reverence, it involves embrace, it'll involve singing, but I think it also involves humility. In other words, becoming prostrate before the Lord. Psalm 95, 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. I found it interesting, both in Hebrew and Greek, the most common word for worship has that connotation of bowing down. It's this, this physical movement of, of going low and recognizing that I am not, but he is. And so I'm going to bow down in worship before him. I think that idea of bowing down can be an attitude of our hearts and minds, but I think that there are times when we are also helped when we go low, when we lay flat, prostrate before the Lord. And it's as though we are going so low in our humility and in our abasement that if we could go any lower than the floor, we would. God, I am not worthy to be with you. I'm not worthy to worship you, and yet I adore you because of who you are. We recognize our sin and our need for him, for his forgiveness. I mentioned Job earlier, and if you're familiar with his story, the, the opening chapters really talk about all that Job lost and that he worshiped the Lord. And then the next big chunk of the book is his, is his friends trying to help him, trying to comfort him, and they are really lousy comforters. And in the end, God begins to ask Job questions, saying, who are you? And so Job responds, it's as though he's got this humility of heart in, verse, in chapter 42, verses 2 to 6. He says, I know that you, God, can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here, I will, and I will speak. I will question you and make you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see, see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. can almost imagine his lowliness, his humility, his bowing down. And one of the natural responses to humility is bowing down in obedience, which brings us to the next letter, to obey. The psalmist concludes this psalm with a helpful reminder to, call to a time of rebellion during the Exodus, a time when the people rebelled against God and became embittered toward him. Look at chapter, uh, Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11, the, really the last part of verse 7. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at, at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and I and put Put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart 
and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. See, I think it would be a bit disingenuous for us to come and worship and read the word and exalt the Lord together to enjoy a time of fellowship and then to go home and act like Monday through Saturday is completely different than Sunday. He wants us to be people who love him. He wants us to be people who honor him with every part of who we are. Often that gets manifested in how we love each other, how we talk to and about others, how we treat each other. Our faith is more than just the changing of our minds. It is a changing of how we live. It's a transformation of our lives both for now and for eternity. So I want to encourage you, if you've not yet responded to God's love for you, if you've not yet responded to who he is, then let me encourage you to begin by bowing down and your greatest act of worship would be to repent. Say, God, I know that you are perfect and I know I am not and I know I need a savior. So I I repent of my sin. I confess that I am not worthy. Jesus, save me. So our worship can involve responding with reverence, embrace, singing, prostrating ourselves before him and obeying him initially into salvation and then daily in how we live. But next we see that our response can involve drawing near to him, drawing near to him. And the first part, first part of verse two, the psalmist writes, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. In some ways, this prompts a question, how do we do that? I mean, God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. He is all-knowing and he is everywhere. So that means everything that is happening, he, he knows, and he is here in our midst. How do we draw near? For the Israelites, this would have, been a, this would have felt a bit like coming into the sanctuary or into the tabernacle to worship, drawing near to the physical representation of God's holiness. But as people who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we believe that his spirit is within us. So how do we draw near? In a sense, do we acknowledge his presence? Are we aware of how he's moving? Are we aware of those things he's prompting us to do? Are we ignoring what he's telling us to do? Or are we being obedient to that still, small voice? Do we align ourselves with his will or do we plant our feet and cross our arms in hopes that God will acquiesce to us instead of us adjusting to him? Let us draw near. Let us be his people. Finally, our responding to God involves declaration to declare and we see this in verses one and two. Now, I gotta tell you, as a society, I think we have some things that are a bit messed up. There are a lot of things that we have a bit messed up. We will loudly proclaim delight in our favorite sports teams. We'll stand up and cheer when an athlete succeeds or applaud in response to a brilliant musical performance. But when it comes to lifting up the praises of God, we often do so under our breaths. 
I mean, how often is it when we're out and about with people and we might get invited to do something that maybe wouldn't be representative of a Christian? Do we loudly say, no, 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 I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's something God would want me to do? Or do we say, no, I can't. I'm a Christian. We declare our allegiance to sports teams. Do we declare our allegiance to God? I've told you before that just about monthly, I get an opportunity to speak at the chapel at Washington Christian Academy where my kids went. And it's so fun. In the first chapel, it's about 8.15 in the morning and all of the elementary schoolers are there. So there's about 100 kids. And man, they sing out. In fact, the last time I was there, I took a video of it because they were singing so loudly. And, and I've jokingly said to them, man, I wish you could come here so you guys could all hear how they worship God. But you know what's so funny? We grow up. The middle schoolers, they're, no, they're bad. The high schoolers are the worst. I cannot even hear them sing. And there's more of them than there are the elementary schoolers. And it's not a comment about WCA. It's about, I think, us and our culture. We get to these places where we are so ashamed of God that we're not gonna declare his praises loudly. Let's look briefly at verses one and two. And I realize we've already seen these a couple times, but notice how in song and in drawing near and in reverence in everything we do, we declare the goodness and the greatness of God. Psalm 95, one to two says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise with songs of praise. Does God deserve our loud declarations more than Debo Samuels or the Detroit Lions or whatever your favorite team is? Does God deserve our praise more than Taylor Swift or the Rolling Stones? Does God deserve our joyful noises more than cheering for our favorite Falcon? Let us make a joyful noise, joyful sounds of declaration of the greatness of God, no matter what others may think of us. Let us not be ashamed to declare his praises. Beloved, we get to delight in God in all times, good times, and those are the easy times to sing out and worship God. But even as we saw from Job, sometimes it's in the lowest times when we have to just resign ourselves. Yes, God, you are sovereign. I don't like this, but I trust you. We get to respond to him and worship. So revere him for who he is, for his character. Embrace him. Relish the relationships into which he has invited you. Sing out. Prostrate yourself and be humble. Obey as he leads. Draw near to his, to his will and to his presence. Declare his greatness among the nations. 